Welcome to the John Wesley Fellows Podcast, the show where John Wesley Fellows have the opportunity to sit down with experts in a variety of fields to talk about issues and topics that are top of mind in today's community. The centerpiece of a foundation for theological education, the Wesley Fellowship Program helps identify, train, and support scholars who are trained in the classical Wesleyan tradition and are committed to traditional innovation. For more information, visit aftesite.org. Welcome to the John Wesley Fellows Podcast. Um, I'm joined today uh, by Lacey Warner. Lacey is an ordained elder in the Texas Annual Conference of the United Methodist Church and currently serves as the Associate Professor of the Practice of Evangelism in Methodist Studies and Associate Dean of Wesleyan Engagement and Hybrid Programs at Duke Divinity School. Before coming to Duke in 2001, Dr. Warner taught at Garrett Evangelical Seminary at Northwestern University uh, as the E. Stanley Jones Assistant Professor of Evangelism. She has served urban congregations in the Methodist Church of Great Britain. Lacey's research interest focuses upon the historical theology of evangelism and how it can inform and locate contemporary church practices within the larger Christian narrative. Lacey, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Well, we'll just jump right in. And the first question that I want to ask you today is, what were some of the formative experiences in your life that led you to serve in theological education? Thinking about those experiences, it was most likely an, um, an unusual path. I did feel called to ministry, and I was the, the first woman to candidate for ordained ministry as an elder from the Woodlands Church, oh, wow. um, Methodist Church way back. And I just was sort of cautiously stepping into, um, you know, into the landscape. And I thought, oh, I'd really love to teach Bible studies, you know, adult discipleship. That, that sounds like, you know, sort of the center of my call, though I feel called to preach and sacraments and such. And uh, it was just this steady journey, perhaps downhill <laughs> into, um, into the, you know, the excitement of um, doctoral studies, but I uh, was serving churches in England with my husband and other pastors on the circuit had learned of my research interests and that um, I was interested in continuing education, but, you know, I was not necessarily focused on a, a doctoral right. degree, but they they talked to um, the uh, director of graduate studies at the University of Bristol and got me an appointment. And all of a sudden, <laughs> I was like thrown into the possibility of talking to people about actual intellectual scholarly questions. And it was raining that day, and we were in the car sitting outside um, this you know very old building mm -hmm. um, with these very um, you know. Uh, austere people and um I didn't want to get out of the car. <laughs> I was like, I'm done, I'm done. I'm just, I'm, I'm good, I'm good. I'm gonna go back to preaching. Like this is too much. Um, you know, there's enough work and challenge in this to like add another layer. And Gas is like, oh, just get out and like go see if the door's unlocked. And I went and I came back to the car to get in and he had locked me out of the car oh, no. in the rain. And he's like, no, no, go have this appointment. Um, and the person I met with, he he made the call right then and said, 
um, hey, would you work with this person? Would you work with Lacey? She's interested in looking at evangelism um, and ministry among women during this mm. time period and Methodism and Wesleyan. And, um, and this, and the person said yes. And like, and that was it. Like I had taken tests and written papers and then had thought, no, 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 I'm not going to do that. Um, but from there, it was just one thing after another yeah. um, at opening doors that I didn't expect. So I do really have to sort of give the credit to other seeing possibilities and making room and yeah. um, spaces that um, I didn't see myself. And, um, and then the roles I've had in theological education are much more sort of pastoral, mm -hmm. pastoral mm -hmm. scholarly, you know, so combining administration, um, but staying in the classroom. And I have really enjoyed it. So that was a, a roundabout yeah. story yeah. of my very supportive husband who locked me out in the room. <laughs> well, I think, I think Wesley would call that a strange train of providences, you know, <laughs> that all these things, you know, were happening to uh, kind of point you in this direction. And, uh, you know, you're, you're, uh, desire for teaching and, and all those things. It's always interesting to hear how people come to theological education. And I always find that the, the journey is never, you know, there, there's not like a model out there that everyone seems to follow. It's, it's a varied <laughs> journey for everyone. It really is. It really is. And I do say to students and peers, you know, if, if we're doing what we're called to do when we wake up in the morning, you know, the rest of it will fall into place. You know, God will work out, you know, the rest, yeah. even yeah. if it's like titles and office space. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> it like, it's all, it's about the ministry and, um, and meeting John Wesley fellows along the way, um, you know, being introduced through, you know, home church as the Woodlands, but mm -hmm. then meeting Ted Campbell was my, um, church history professor, first year in seminary and, you know, people along the way that just said, oh, why don't you consider this? Would you want to do this? I was like, oh, well, that sounds interesting. Yeah, okay, we'll do that. Um, and it it just kept unfolding from there. So yes, the, those are some of the formative experiences and people. Yeah, and that's what I was going to say. I think, you know, most of the time when, when we ask those kinds of questions, it's it's always the people that seem to, to you know, get highlighted because, you know, we had that professor or that you know, pastor or whoever it is that encouraged us and, and kind of, or maybe even prodded us or locked us out of the car. <laughs> that's the first, that's the yeah. first for me. That's the first one I've heard uh, that, that, that went that way, but uh, yeah, but that's a, that was, that was a little tough love, I guess. <laughs> it was, it was, I, I was not happy at first, but then when it was over, I was like, okay, that was, that was good. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Because it really is a small world and trusting our callings in the hands of, of others that we might not know, but somebody who knows us knows. Right. Um, right. That, that was really a surprise um, when I got in the office and I had all these letters that were like, to whom it may concern, which usually aren't the best, right? right? You know, I can see them. He can see them. We can all see them. And he's like, oh, I know this person. I know this person. Oh, this is great. Absolutely. You can start today. And it's like, whoa, you know, that's a much different thing um, than, than I was expecting. Yeah. But to find the opportunities and the affirmation where we might not expect it is an was an important lesson yes. and that I try to share with folks. Yeah. 
yeah, it's like talking to people and keep asking for prayer and, and the vocation works itself yeah. out. Yeah, that, that's good. Thank you. Yeah. So kind of building on that a little bit, um, what, what are some connections that you draw between those kind of personal experiences and intellectual, but also institutional dimensions as you think about your time in, in theological education? This is a really interesting question. I have thought about it in a number of different ways. And so let me see if this is on, on track. Um, you know, to be called, I mean, personally as a pastor, but then also to study um, and then to find a vocation within an institution. Like we all work within institutions. Well, I guess not all. I mean, we do. Yeah, or um, some form of an institution, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like institutions have callings, right? Mm -hmm. So they have mission. Right. And to be honest with ourselves and God about our gifts and our fit with the institutional mission, you know, the institution's gift and its mission, um, and to make sure, you know, that that lines up within our practicing or participating in God's reign. And so I, for most of my ministry um, of God's ministry through me, um, I, my, mis my vocation has lined up pretty squarely with being at a United Methodist seminary, right? Being at here for a couple of years and then, but Duke Divinity School. And, and then as a part of that mission, you know, sort of understanding the institutional commitments, um, both to intellectual practices and rigor, but then, but more importantly to the Methodist church, you know, the Duke, the divinity school is, is so, um, I was going to say so dependent, so interwoven, uh, with the Duke endowment and with other, um, with the United Methodist church and with other Wesleyan traditions and grantors that, um, seeing those goals line up, you know, so wanting to participate in people's formation and their understanding of evangelism and evangelistic practices, missional outreach, leadership, you know, that, that is helpful to the church who you know, we're learning from the church and, you know, learning together about how to participate in God's mission, that it just, it all lines up together. And so that's my, um, like a litmus test or a, um, like a prayer, uh, you know, so if we think about Augustine's prayer about being, um, you know, at rest, you're restless until I have my rest in you to really be at rest in that ministry, whether or not it includes the institution. Right. And so if we can shift, participate with folks to shift the institution's mission, great. But if that institution is needing to move, then being a part of, um, you know, another, you know, that so having been at Duke, I've been there 20 years now as a faculty member, and I have really tried to stay fresh in my prayers and discernment about okay, when is it? When's the end of the shelf life? Yeah, yeah. right. Like itinerants, right? right? Like for yeah. for um, But I still feel called to be there, so I wanted to see if that would be a helpful conversation about those um, those layers because you know there's another conversation to have about the intellectual guilds, right? So if the institution is pulling this way with, with, if the church is pulling this way and the guilds are pulling that way and the institution is pulling this way, like how, um, how to weave all that together. So there's a faithfulness within right. it that takes priority. Right. 
Um, and having a community like John Wesley Fellows to discern and practice that with is really important. Yeah, I think I think that's uh, I, I know I've found that to be true. And and the fact that we have John Wesley Fellows that serve uh, in pastoral ministry, that serve the academy, that serve in you know uh, foundations and other places. I mean, you know, we have a variety of people who all have you know at some at some level we all have this academic. Um, intellectual calling, but that's being, uh, I, I think what I hear you saying is that, that, that comes, that takes shape in different ways. Um, and, and, and there are influences from the church, there are influences from the academy, the guild, um, and then whatever that institution happens to be where we are serving, uh, there's an influence there. And, and I really love what you say about, you know, trying to figure out how those things converge, and if um, if they are converging in a way that I still feel called to that particular place and time and institution, yeah, I think that's I think that's a really helpful thing to think about. And I know I, I, I've thought about it that way as a pastor. You know, is it time to move on? You know, from this appointment, uh, but I think it's it's a similar kind of process. Um, as academics too. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Well, um, shifting gears a little bit, uh, you said you've, you've been at Duke 20 years, and then of course you spent some years before that at Garrett. And, um, and so what, in your experience and in your time, and of course you could even go back, you know, your time as a student as well, but thinking back, what's changed about higher education in general uh, and what seems to have stayed the same? What are, what are the constants and what are the things that seem to be shifting under our feet, <laughs> I guess? Sure, sure. And um, so I did uh, a little bit of, you know, digging into notes and um, ATS data. I don't know how many people really enjoy those data sheets. I do. <laughs> I do. <laughs> um, but the ATS, the Association for the Theological Schools has um um, just a really helpful newsletter that comes out every once in a while. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is over the last few years, but there has been um, longitudinal data that looks at what has what is changing and what's staying the same. So one thing that is changing is that while we in theological schools have a similar number of students to the numbers from, say, 20 years mm -hmm. ago, we the number of degrees or certificates or lines, you know, tracks is exponentially increased. Right. So if 20 years ago, a school had two, let's say two degrees. Yeah. So probably the MDiv and something else. Yeah. And it, or, yes, so, sure. So think or, about theological education anyway. Yeah. Or an MA, um, you know, uh, Masters of Religious Education, yeah. you know, like, so... You, Today, many of those schools have double or triple the number mm -hmm. of degrees. And so Duke is similar in this regard, you know, depending on how you how you count the different degrees, because you know, some degrees sort of have cycle life right. cycles and they are taught out and then um and then other things replace it with a different name, but sort of the same constituency. Right. Um, but we have um, we have many more degrees than we had uh 20 years ago. But and while we have a, a large number of students, um, there 
it's a similar number. We're saying that we are, it is true. I'm not, I mean, I'm all about like, I'm, I'm loyal. (laughs) We do have um, our record enrollments. We have record enrollments, um, but they're across more degree programs and they're just because we have a record enrollment for two years doesn't mean we have the same capacity of students that we might've had 20 years ago. So that's a, it's very, they're very similar, even if we're sort of reaching up. Um, and that's just, that's wild. So we're doing much more work, mm-hmm. everyone, right. students, faculty, administrators, everyone's doing a lot more work for the same number of FTEs, of full-time right. enrollments. Right. Um, and that, that's really, um, it's just an interesting you know, reflection of, is it about market? Yeah. Or is it about calling? Is it specialization? You know, what, yeah, I was going to ask you if you thought it's related to, because it seems like in, in higher education in general, there seems to be a, a, an increasing, you know, higher education, if you go back far enough, it was, it was really more about, you know, a liberal arts education. It was about educating the whole person and, you know, preparing you for whatever career you might have. And now things are so much more specialized and, and you kind of wonder how much is the impact of just higher education in general kind of filtering down mm-hmm. to theological education and creating that desire or need for specialization uh, versus mm-hmm. the, the MDiv, which was the is, is still kind of the generalist, I guess you would say, uh, degree in, in so many ways. Yes, because what I've talked about is theological education, and you're reminding me the questions about higher education. Oh, that's education. okay, yeah. So it is, but there is a similar, so even though the numbers are that I am describing are coming from ATS data uh, and studies in higher education. There's also this proliferation, particularly of master's degrees. Right. I mean, so many master's degrees and, you know, there are articles around about like, you know, how, 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 (laughs) I want to be nice about it, right? (laughs) Like how, how effective are these, you know, how important are they? I mean, they're certainly important um, there was, uh, you know, a boom of master's degrees after the 2008, 2009, 2009 mm-hmm. um, economic displacement, right? right? Like right. The difficulties in the economy. And, you know, after difficult moments in the economy, oftentimes people go back to school That's right. and, or, or go to school. Mm-hmm. And so this, you're building infrastructures for master's degrees across the accrediting bodies, but then also in higher education. So um, yeah, there's just, there's a lot more, a lot more offerings and choices. Um, But what has stayed the same, Mm -hmm. I think, is that um, there's still a need for integration and formation Mm -hmm. to answer people's calls. You know, so for, um, for higher ed, it's still so important and maybe even more important that that whole person is formed, like you right. described liberal right. arts education, like that, that's still a need, that character, mm-hmm. um, knowledge, skills, that it all, that all of that is rolled up together, that you, you can, um, you, know, you can, what is it, like sort of dismantle or um, have the different pieces, but it still needs to be integrated and, and a whole, yeah, you know, it needs right. to make sort of build an arc. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, and I think that's true for theological education too. Like at the end of the day, God continues to call folks mm-hmm. and, and that the importance of spiritual formation, um, in the midst of 
of our knowledge and skills is is so significant. Yeah, it's, it's really key. Yeah, definitely. So as you think, you know, we talked about some similarities, I think, between higher education in general and, and theological education and the, you know, the prol proliferation of more degrees or, or specializations even. Uh, this another thing I've seen is that even though you may have some of the same degrees, you have multiple specializations under uh, under that degree. You know, um, what what are some things that you think are uniquely um, unique to theological education in terms of you know what stayed the same or what's changed? Maybe you know maybe they, these are things that may not be quite reflected in the general higher education world. <laughs> So I wonder what you think about this. I was reflecting on um, the, you know, the sort of profile of students, mm, yeah, as, as well as faculty, as well as uh, instructors, and I, I sense that there is a, um, like a seeking out. Okay, so this is so so that there's sort of been a, a shift from, um. Okay, <laughs> so I think that there's been a shift from students, even faculty, sort of understanding that the um, the context of theological education is a community, mm. and it's a community of faithful, mm -hmm. but it's not the church. Right. Right. It's not the community of faith. Right. And I I see that shifting mm. to where individuals um, and groups, affinity groups, like they turn to the learning community as a community of faith, okay. like as a liturgical right. community. Right. And we do have chapel, but, and we do practice, um, we share the Eucharist, mm -hmm. Lord's Supper, but we don't baptize, right. right? We tend, you know, sometimes there are weddings, sometimes there's memorial services, but it's just this, that the boundaries there are, are less distinctive and, mm -hmm. and are blurred. Mm -hmm. And that can be really difficult yeah. um, because the calling of a place of theological education is not the same um, mm. as the calling or mission of the church. And so just sort of laying that out there that there's, there's um, yeah, that education, education can be a part of the church's mission, but it is not the, the, not the entire mission. Of it. Right, right. Yeah. And, and I think that's, uh, that's really interesting because I think, when you look at, um, you know, the makeup of students, at least in my institution, for sure, I think we see more students coming that don't have deep roots in a congregation. They have, exactly. you know, they're new Christians or fairly new Christians and are, mm -hmm. uh, you know, coming to seminary. And yeah, I think you're right. I think they're identifying this is my new tribe. This is my new uh, community of faith. Uh, and, um, and, and that, that really does make a difference, I think. And I, and I think to go back to our earlier conversation, I think it reinforces the need, the challenge to both form people, you know, spiritual formation of people, as well as the intellectual, because we can't assume, I don't think any longer that these students are coming to us, you know, spiritually mature, not, not that anyone is ever, you know, <laughs> We're, we're still all striving forward, you know, we haven't, we haven't reached it yet, but, um, but there, but there's, there's this sense, in, at least in my thinking, and maybe you can, you'll, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, uh, that 
you know, these students are coming and they, they really desire and need, um, you know, to be formed before they go out and, and serve wherever they, you know, are called to serve. I agreed, agreed. The dog agrees to you. <laughs> That's great. Sorry about that. <laughs> um, but absolutely, yes, the people are coming um, and, and instructors too from all kinds of uh, Christian communities, all mm -hmm. kinds of religious communities, um, but but in our in my context, in our context, like mostly Christian communities, and that there's not necessarily um, consistent narratives, mm -hmm. right? So I'm I I was formed in the post-liberal school, right? So reading yep. Lynn Beck and Harwas and um, and and McIntyre, even mm -hmm. you know, so so as a part of the educational journey that we're immersed in grammar and narratives and traditions um, that then shape our practices or, or vice versa, like that they're like, all of this is, is woven together and that that's so much of what the, uh, what a seminary degree or what theological education can offer is a, you know, a season that then can frame um, because, you know, local churches, or denominations or traditions like that is not necessarily um there's so much fragmentation everywhere um or or and if it's not fragmentation it's a uh, locality right like yeah. and not there's not as much awareness of of a tradition or a history mm -hmm. a narrative over time and so and our um, a larger our narrative other, yeah yeah, yeah, whether it's Methodism or Wesley, um, you know, we might know about Wesley, but we might not know about, you know, the two or 300 years in between, right, right. <laughs> what happens in between, um, and just to see how that works itself out, um, and what, what we want to recover, um, what we want to innovate, uh, and that, um, so those, so, so that theological education really serves the church, yeah. um, I mean, I do, I do think that's important. And sometimes theological education wants to get out ahead. <laughs> right. Um, and, and because the church hasn't necessarily had the, whatever we mean by that. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I mean many different things, but the church hasn't necessarily had the capacity to lead. And so we're, um, there is some imbalance mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. Yes. But I do think you're right. I think folks come and they're not formed deeply mm -hmm. in a narrative um, or, or a tradition over time right. and that but then the practices are new, the liturgy is new, whatever the liturgy right. is, right? right. The um, and the stories. And so reading scripture, you know, to read the whole of scripture then opens up all sorts of possibilities. And, you know, historical criticism is important, but it, it needs to be done through a theological lens, right? It's not just, the Bible's not just another book. Right. Right. You know, there's, there's some inspiration there. Yeah, yeah. Um, a lot, a lot of inspiration. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so um, thinking back on these, you know, the last several years in theological education, what um, is there something or some things, it could be multiple things that has really come as a surprise to you um, as theological education has changed or transformed or however, whatever word we want to assign to that? <laughs> yeah, there. Um... Is there something that has surprised me? I mean, I think 
not necessarily, yes, things have surprised me, um, not necessarily in a positive way. Mm. Um, I'm sort of interested to see how history repeats itself. <laughs> and, you know, on one hand, that's not a surprise, but then on the other, it, it is really, right. it's like, oh, so we are still dealing with particular challenges that when I was a student, you know, are still present. And, you know, we haven't necessarily resolved that. And it's, it's not the sort of thing where, you know, I realize that the heresies are all still alive and well <laughs> and pick some, you know, I think that's sort of instructive um, that we need to continue to deal with systemic challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the, on the one hand, there is a, a timelessness to what we teach. Mm-hmm. And then on the other, there needs to be this constant adaptability mm-hmm. and responsiveness to the Holy Spirit, yeah. and um, and just how, as educators, I can fall into uh, comfort zones mm-hmm. that are old lectures and old stories and old, and then um, you know that you know I really want to move that forward, um, but how hard that is to do as a whole school, mm-hmm. right? Like yeah. as to really continue to move together. Um, but um, I just, I'm surprised and pleased at how the Holy Spirit works through that. But that was a hard question. I, I thought about that. And I'm like, yeah, like how things don't change. Like <laughs> things do change, um, but just how reluctant we can be as, and I say we, like how I can be as an instructor right, right. Um, of, saying I want us to move with the Holy Spirit and then like not moving. Yeah, we want, we want to stay in that not comfortable moving. place where we, we we know our lecture notes, we know our subject and yeah, we just want to kind of get in that groove and, and keep moving. <laughs> right, right. Because even the way we've taught Bible or theology, even though, or history that they're classic texts, there are new interpretations and new voices. Right. And I am... Um, you know, I want to be a lifelong student as well. Right, right. Um, and just, I guess I'm surprised at how hard that is, how hard, like it really does take effort. It doesn't happen on accident. Yeah. And I think, yeah, I think part of the temptation there is, you know, there's so much work that goes into preparing, you know, a class or a lecture or, and, and to, to think, oh, I've got to go back and change that. Uh, you know, it was a little daunting <laughs> to think I've got to go back and rework that. And, but, it, but it's so true. I, I heard a, um, someone say not long ago about uh, they were, this, this was, I think, in a secular institution, but I was listening to uh, either, either a podcast or an interview, and they were talking about how, you know, they'd used this story for years and years, and they realized they, they used this story, and I think it was like a media reference, so like to a, a, a sitcom or some TV show or something, and they realized that it, none of their students got it. I mean, it was just completely, they, they all just, you know, were stone-faced and, you know, they were supposed to laugh and, and they didn't have a clue what he was talking about. And, and yeah, we can fall into that, that trap. I mean, that's a kind of a anecdotal kind of, you know, small way of, of talking about it. But, um, but yeah, like you said, the, the minute what we teach really has this timeless dimension, but uh, if we're not keeping up and and I guess that's that's where you know going back to our earlier question, where you know these streams of the guild and the institution and the church, you know the church is helping 
us, you know, if we're staying active in the, in the church, we're, we're, we're aware of the issues the church is dealing with, and we can address, you know, help address those from our particular point of view as a scholar, or the guild is going in a particular direction, and that, so that those two can help feed um, what we do in the classroom, but only if we let it. <laughs> right, yes, yes, only if we let it. Yep. Um, but that is uh, an ongoing habit. You know, that's some, an ongoing goal that I'm, I'm committed yeah. to you, is trying to do that, even though it gets harder <laughs> the that's older right. I get. That's right. Yeah, it does. It, you, you really want to go back to, you know, what you know, and yeah, it's, it's comfortable sometimes. Well, I have a, you, you, we, we mentioned earlier about, you know, some articles and things that have come out over the last few years and um, one of those articles that just recently came out is an interest article written by Dan Alshire, who was, is the former, um, I can't remember the title is director, but uh, director of ATS, Association of Theological Schools, and um, he was the executive. And he said, he said some inter interesting things, a lot of interesting things in this article. We could probably spend a lot of time in it, but this one quote kind of jumped out at me, and I wanted to, to read it to you and then kind of get your your um reaction to it. And he says, some people want to get rid of all the furniture of theological education and start over, while others want to refinish a few pieces and keep everything just as it is. Maybe, just maybe, the task of the future will be, uh, will most need, that we will most need will be to go to theological education's attic and retrieve things put in storage that had stopped being used even though their usefulness was undiminished. And so with that quote in mind, I was wondering, what are, what are some of those things in your mind that we've maybe put in storage that we ought to consider taking out of the attic? Dude, I really want to ask Dan. Yeah, I know. What do you yeah. need? <laughs> it's like, oh, what do you have in mind? Because it, um, you know, we sort of read it through our own lens and what one thing, one set of things that comes to mind um, out of my study of uh, women's ministries over the last um, 300 years is that there's these simple practices mm -hmm. of prayer, Bible study, serving one's neighbor that were the basis of their Christian discipleship. And I, I wonder if there's something about we've made theological education so sophisticated mm -hmm. or distant or elite, or, um, I guess I'm talking about my school, huh? Like, I can't talk about all, like, I, like if, you know, so not that the instructors want to do this, the faculty don't want to do this, but students are like, oh my gosh, I'm finally in graduate school. Like I'm here, right. I'm doing this, but that we're really just journeying together, reading scripture, mm -hmm. practicing, you know, worshiping together and, um, practicing ministry, like in a teaching hospital. Yeah. Um, so that you can go out there and teach others. Like that's, that's really what we're doing. And so is that, um, is it something about field education mm -hmm. then that, that instead of being tacked on becomes the center, you know, there's this, um, so this, I think it's a wonderful example. It's an Anglican church, uh, near London in London, um, called St. Melitus. Oh yeah. And yeah. They have instructors, faculty members, scholars from all over England, like including Oxford and Cambridge, and they've 
basically the way I would describe it is they've flipped the curriculum to center around a field assignment. So everybody's appointed Mm -hmm. and then they come to campus on, I think it's like Mondays, maybe Mondays, Tuesdays, and they study and then they go, they meet with folks and then they go back out. They're they're doing most of their time. And I just, you know, I think if you're doing any kind of time management or, um, or financial planning, you want to set your goals Mm -hmm. and then you want your calendar and your, you know, bank account, your savings account to match your goals, right? right? right. Like you don't want calendar to run your priorities. Right. It's got to be the other ground. And so that if prioritizing the church and one's immersion in ministry as, as central. And so mm. I wonder um, if that has something to do um, with, with Dan's metaphor about, yeah. about the attic, because it's still purposeful, um, but sort of repurposing, right. you know, sort of like taking things and and repurposing without having to buy something, something new, new because yeah. still going to do the same thing. Yeah, no, that's yeah. that's really good, and it makes me think uh, of the. So I did my PhD through the University of Manchester and Cliff College in England, and Cliff started out as this evangelism training school, and you know they would bring at the time it was I think it was all young men at the time, but. Uh, this would have been the late, well, it would have been the late 1800s. And so they would bring these young men to, you know, the Midlands of England and uh, Derbyshire, and they would spend, you know, like a couple of weeks in the classroom. And then they would spend two weeks on mission in all these little villages around, you know, that part of England. And so there was this real balance, if you will, between practice and learning. And, you know, it was, and it was really more like what um, one of the organizations I'm involved with, we call, we, and this is not unique to us, but we talk about learning communities. You know, it was really more of a learning community, you know, that we're, we're learning together, but we're also practicing together. And so, yeah, I think that, I, I, and that does seem to be, you know, in our DNA, especially as Methodist Wesleyans, you know, that there was, there's a lot of on-the-job training <laughs> that happened in early Methodism, and um, and perhaps that's something you know in the attic that, that maybe could be pulled back out again. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Well, especially celebrating is it 250 years of the course of study oh, yeah. in recent yeah. years. You know, that was really the the primary mode of formation. That's right of knowledge formation, theological formation, but, you know, everybody was in practice and I absolutely love teaching in course of study um, because the questions are so insightful Mm -hmm. and um, and pertinent. And so it, you know, the balance of of teaching and non-degree programs Mm -hmm. settings, as well as degree programs, you know, that Methodism really does have this, um, the Wesleyan movement, this accessibility, you know, yeah. there's, there's Francis Asbury and Thomas Koch, right. you know, it's all, right. um, all across. Yeah. And then the deaconesses, yeah. I mean, they had a similar, uh, structure to formation that was punctuated by practices yeah. as nurses, evangelists, doctors later. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's great. That's great. Um, so, We've had obviously a crazy couple of years. <laughs> you know, it's hard to avoid talking about the influence of the pandemic and what that's meant on 
higher education in general, but also theological education. And so I guess my question really, I think let's let's just go straight to theological education. And I think, because I think the implications are probably the same for higher ed and for theological education. But do you think there will be a return, quote, return to normal? Um, or maybe put a different way, what do you envision as kind of the new normal in theological education as a result of kind of the upheaval we've had um, with, with the pandemic? Yeah, I don't think there's any going back. Um, <laughs> yeah. I think people will try. Maybe I'll try. No, I'm not. We, we want to. We want that familiar. Yeah. yeah. No, I think the um, the pandemic has it has not helped in any way, but what it has um, caused is a um, an acceleration mm. on a number of sort of delivery options. Right. right? So there's there's information, there's data about how, um, you know, telemedicine, mm -hmm. uh, groceries, prescriptions, you know, the use of technology um, to create greater efficiencies right, right. in these areas, right, mm -hmm. and in these domains. So, um, so medicine, food, and and prescriptions, even, even and, mental health. And among even other mental health. I mean, yeah. So. So there, yes. And so then, um, so education. So I just, I don't, I think we were moving in this direction and there now has been an acceleration, um, a press, you know, we've been pressed into and it, it just, it offers so many advantages and creates so much accessibility that is, is really, um, I don't know. I just think it's, uh, it's essential to our mission. You know, there's, you know, are we really going to exclude now that we've included mm -hmm. in this way? Yeah. How, can, how can we say no necessarily? Because we we can do, um, you know, there's always been, well, always um, over the last 20 years, there's been research about pedagogical or teaching best practices um, or teaching practices and effectiveness. And so the, um, you know, it's not about in the classroom or online it's about the practice, yeah. right? Like you can have the best of both, um, which is what, you know, I'm, I'm trying to do in, in my role and have been trying to do over the last um, 10 or 12 years at Duke. Uh, so, so there's no new normal. And I think that the, um, the new normal will include greater and greater flexibility and tracking with ATS numbers that will be greater and greater diversity. Mm. And so whether that means, um, you know, underrepresented groups in the United States or internationally, mm -hmm. uh, you can see ATS shifting its um, governance, not its governance necessarily, but its organization. Like it's more, there's more and more interaction with international right. bodies that are That's similar right. because we have more and more satellite or extension mm -hmm. or collaborations mm -hmm. across um, across national boundaries. Yeah. And so I think greater flexibility and greater diversity is going to then also feed this more tracks and more possibilities. Right. It was interesting and, to me that, you know, ATS changed its standards in 2020 and really allows for a much more flexible delivery of education than they did before. I mean, you could, you could apply for exceptions and experiments before, but, but now you don't have to apply for those. I mean, you have to apply for approval for distance ed, but but in general, but 
you know, it, it, it's not, we're not as constrained. And it's, it's really interesting that that came just prior to <laughs> the pandemic happening. Um, and, and like you said, it's, it's as if the train was already going down the track, but someone turned the throttle up and, you know, now we're barreling down the, <laughs> down the track. We really are, we really are. And it's almost hard to believe that, or it's hard to digest the 2020 ATS um, revisions, right? Like the revisions to standards, because it, you know, when I talk to other folks dealing with curricula, there's a sense that, oh no, that's, that's, that's the exception for the pandemic. I'm like, is it? Is it? Wait, let's go back and look. (laughs) Like, I think actually, <laughs> no, you know, there is a, there is a, a paradigm shift mm-hmm. in how accreditors are looking at this and um, based on research, based on data. And, um, and so to our, you know, to the folks who want to like stay in um, <laughs> 2001, 1995, like we are so like, it is a different place. Like there's a timelessness to what we do. And but there's um, there's so much creativity and those relationships uh, are you know across boundaries you're across institutions then we can have even more um, generative projects and relationships right. and like learn together like that learning community can be even richer yeah. um, so I think it's a lot of work but I think it's really worth yeah. it. I agree. I agree. And I think it, it, you know, one of the challenges is we have to figure out, you know, in these new modalities that we're delivering this education is how do we continue to do the formation that we were accustomed to doing when people were face to face and in the same room, you know, how do you do that at a distance? And I think that's going to be one of our biggest challenges probably for the next few years is, is learning to adapt so that we're not simply just, you know, purveyors of, of, facts and figures and, and, and information, but that, you know, that transformation that we've been talking about continues to happen uh, in students' lives. Yeah. So we talked a little bit about uh, this already. So I want to kind of shift gears a little bit on, on some of the last couple of questions that I was going to ask you. And because uh, we talked about how the students coming to theological education now are, are, are different in terms of their preparation, in terms of their formation. Um, but thinking about that, what would you say to college professors, campus ministers, and even churches uh, in terms of preparing students as they head toward theological education? So I am rather traditional in this regard, and we'll see how this sits. But um, in terms of preparedness uh, for folks for for seminary, just I think writing, communicating, mm-hmm. whatever the means of communication. And I realize, you know, writing might not be for everyone. Like we have all sorts of different learning capacities and styles, right. but doing close readings of texts and contexts and practicing communicating um, about those and um, that, that that is still such an important set of skills because they translate right. um, whatever the translatable skills are, you know, with those, they translate into ministry so well. So that's where I'm quite, I'm quite traditional. Like I just, I think um, I mean, my poor child is, I mean, she's all right, actually, 
Um, Claire, my daughter Claire is 10 and she attends a Christian classical school. She's in fourth grade and learning Latin. Yeah. And you know, some of my, of course, most of my friends are like, oh, that's very cool. And then um, some of our family members are like, what are you doing to her? <laughs> it's like, well, she's, she's also dyslexic and knowing the roots of words is important. Yeah. And so this is actually a help, but with accommodations, like it's helpful. So I think um, if that can be a kind of, um, and thank you, Claire, for letting me use <laughs> the example. Um, if that can be a kind of um, translatable example is, is reading and writing well is, uh, and, and with whatever accommodations, I think yeah. it's really important. Um, and this other one is like how to think strategically mm. or systemically. There's something about um, the systems that construct churches and politics and economies and those um those same systems you know they influence and shape higher education theological education like they're just the world mm -hmm. and so any of those really hard questions but to see it as um how we're complicit and how we can work within you know there's oftentimes this oh well that's over there you know capitalism is over there and it is bad it's like is it actually? I think Wesley liked <laughs> yeah. that. But, you know, so you're just having that nuance. So dealing with big questions that uh, need nuanced responses and that perhaps don't have an answer, I think is really helpful. Um, and in the midst of that, so this is my third. So one, <laughs> reading and writing. Two, thinking systemically and strategically. And then three is emotional intelligence. Mm. You know, Emotional intelligence is, you know, it's just, it's the key to connecting with people, right. to connecting, um, you know, to, to embodying an incarnational ministry. Yeah. And so seeing that as an aspect of our um, skills, you know, that it's not just reading and writing, but also being able right. to interact with folks, right. show God's love and receive God's love is significant. So that's, that I was, I'm very, very basic, like no surprises. Yeah. It's not read this one really helpful book, um, but to just keep doing what folks are doing because we're all in this together. Yeah. Um, and we work work together as teams and learning communities uh, to serve the church yeah. and the church in the world. Yeah, that's a, I really love that the kind of combination of things and you know the emotional intelligence I think is so key. Um, I know uh, I've followed the work of Sherry Turkle for many years who's written um, one of her books was called Reclaiming Conversation, and she talks about, you know, the kind of the effect of technology, how that's how that's affected um, empathy for one another. And she cited a study of college students where, you know, their level of empath empathy was so much lower than previous uh, generations of college students and that there is a direct tie into the, the, you know, the greater use of technology for communication. But she said, as soon as you put those students in a room together and they begin to talk to one another, their empathy level goes right back up again. So, you know, it's not that technology is bad and she's certainly not an anti-technology person, but she just says, you know, mm -hmm. we need, we need to just be more intentional about providing those spaces mm -hmm. where people can connect in other ways besides texting and, you know, and all those kinds of ways of mm -hmm. communication. So, yeah, that's really helpful. Um, last question, and this is a very broad question. Uh, and you can take this in any direction you want. Um, 
But this is really, I, I like to ask these kinds of questions to end because, you know, there's so many things going on in the world that are negative. And, you know, we can say um, negative things about the church. We can say negative things about our society and the world. And, but, you know, we serve a God who is a God of hope. And uh, so when you think about uh, the church and the future of the church and the future of Christian leaders, what is it that gives you hope? What are the signs of hope that you see? Well, first is that there are present future leaders. Does that yeah, make sense? Like yeah. There are people who are answering God's call right now that are, are willing to do this um, you know, early on in their life and to continue um, to follow that call um, into, into seasons that I may not see. Uh, yeah. So that, that gives me great hope that there's, um, that it continues, that, you know, people continue to respond to God's spirit. And um, it also gives me hope that folks are asking really hard questions mm. and willing to sacrifice uh, and to respond earnestly that, uh, you know, sort of remind me, it's just so refreshing. It's very refreshing. It's, um, do I worry about, you know, idealism, um, naivete? Yes. Um, but I always say, like, when I was younger, people would say, oh, you're so enthusiastic. You're so ideal. You're so idealistic. Um, you're naive. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. I am idealistic and hope to remain somewhat enthusiastic, um, but I'm not naive. Like, I'm not naive. Like, I've, you know, there's no. And so I do, I do think that there's something um, that gives me great hope that our um, newer leaders, many of whom are younger, um, but some answering a call that they've been avoiding mm -hmm. for a lot of their life, that people are willing to, to drop, to drop all sorts of comforts to mm -hmm. do that. Um, and they're also, um, they're just also willing to just embrace whatever difficulty comes in order to in order to follow God's yeah. call and to yeah. be a part of God's, um, God's reign. And so, um, and they're not naive, like they've traveled, yeah. they've, they've practiced, they've, um, done mission, you know, they've, they are so much more aware of the world than I was in my mid twenties. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and so, and that, you know, even knowing more about how difficult participating in the reign of God can be, there's still all kinds of energy yeah. and commitment to that. So people are still um, responding, yeah. even though they see. Yeah. Yeah. They're even more aware of how difficult it can be. Yeah. Um, but I think that's, that's extremely hopeful. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. Well, Lacey, thank you so much for this conversation today. I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us and, um, and look forward to, to having further conversations in the future. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. This has been a delight. This concludes today's episode of the John Wesley Fellows podcast. Today's episode was produced by Daniel Yike. Music by Ian Post. This podcast is a production of a Foundation for Theological Education and the Wesley Fellowship Program. Copyright 2021. All rights reserved.